This episode is brought to you by Let's Get Checked, the leading provider of at-home health tests. Are you looking to improve your thyroid levels? With Let's Get Checked, you can do a simple at-home health test that will give you a complete picture of your hormonal health in five days. Some of the main symptoms of thyroid imbalance include weight gain, fatigue, slow pulse, hair loss, and more. So how does this process work? Your test is delivered straight to your door. You just have to self-collect your blood sample from the tip of your finger. Mail the sample back to their accredited laboratories in the prepaid label and receive support and guidance from the LGC medical team who are available 24-7. This week, Let's Get Checked wants to invite you to join their community with a 30% discount code THERAPY30. Let's get checked. It's good to know. Now, on to the show. Well, hello there. Welcome to Brand Therapy. I'm Phil. And I'm Lauren. And this is the podcast where we help you position, build, and promote your brands. We're so happy you're here. You know, after, what is it, over 80 episodes. I think this is episode 88. We have a first. We don't often have firsts, right? Because that's a lot of episodes. But this is the first episode where you're primarily only going to get one of us. And that one of us is the other one, Miss Lauren Moore, who does today's interview solo. And if you don't like me, you should just stop the episode and pick it up next week. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. No, it's not. I've had a solo episode, but this is going to be your very first one. (laughs) Yeah. So even though I wasn't there to be there for this conversation, I think, what was it? Why wasn't I there? I had like a call traveling. No, I wasn't traveling. I think I was doing a webinar. <laughs> that was it? Yeah, that was right. it. I was doing a webinar. And you guys have what I think today is a really timely, important discussion on uncertainty. At least that's where it's going to start. I love Marcus. He's just the best. He is. And this is the right time to be having this conversation, right? Him as a commercial pilot, mitigating risk, calculating uncertainty, the chances of it, what do you do, right? So many people are in a position right now where things are uncertain. And so I feel like if I was going to trust anyone in a time of uncertainty, it would be Marcus. Like I could bring my greatest problems and challenges to him and he would help me sort those out. He's like the person to trust. Yeah, so when the pandemic changed the world as we know it. The first person I thought of who came to my mind was Marcus. And I wanted to know what Marcus's perspective was on thriving in times of uncertainty. Marcus is a commercial pilot. He flies gigantic planes around the world. He was formerly in the Royal Air Force. And if there's anyone who knows what to do in a high pressure situation and ensure that you know what to do for future high pressure situations, That's Marcus. So we really get into how, as a business, no matter what industry you're in, you can be prepared to thrive in uncertainty and develop resilience. So that way, your team knows exactly what to do when something goes wrong, because something will always go wrong. Right. It's not if it's going to go wrong, it's when. And Marcus is the best. He is the best. I love him in this discussion. He's my favorite. I could talk to him all day. He's so kind and trustworthy. I find that I'll think of random things 
can be like, oh, I need to message Marcus about that. Like I was reading about how pilots will often see identifiable (laughs) flying objects. And I was thinking, oh, I should ask Marcus if he's ever seen a UFO (laughs) flying while he's on his plane. So anyway, I feel like Marcus is just a treasure trove of information, of experience. He's a delight. And so while Phil, you're not in this episode and the spark that you bring isn't there, I certainly think that the information is. So I really hope people like this one. Oh, I think they will. I mean, imagine the two of you together. (laughs) I can imagine it. Two nerds talking it out. Let's do it. Let's get right to it. Here is Lauren's conversation with... Marcus. Marcus, you are an expert in organization and in risk management. And so Phil and I thought you would be an amazing guest on our podcast for everyone to learn all of your knowledge. I think first off with the pandemic happening and a lot of uncertain things happening like economically, a lot of people are thinking about risk in a way that they never have before. So I want to know, just to start things off, like, why do you think it's important for companies to prepare for risk management? One of my friends put this in a brilliant way a few days ago. And he said, if you don't know the risks that you're taking as a company, you don't really know your own company. And I agree with him totally. And it's very similar to the analogy that he used was, it's like being blind. So you're walking forward with a blindfold on and your hands tied behind your back. You're essentially handicapped. You don't know where you're going. If you don't understand the risks you're taking, how can you be effective as an organization? How can you prepare for anything if you don't know where you're exposed? And I guess that's why you need to know. What made you interested in risk management? The industry that I work in does its best to mitigate risk as much as possible, as do most organizations. But it's it's quite interesting. And the way that people deal with not only risk, but all the elements that go into that. So how we deal with problem solving or mistakes. So risks, threats, errors the way an organization is constructed, its culture, the people within it, how everybody interacts. It's the people that I find interesting, but it's kind of what comes from those people. So risk is just another facet that is that plugs into everyday life. Um, and it's quite interesting how we deal with it and we, what we can learn to make ourselves better and the organizations that we work for. And if, we're, if we own a company or we're running a company, we want to be as efficient as we can. And much like you and Phil, I'm trying to have a business of my own as well. And I want to understand the risks that I'm taking to be as good as I can be as an organization. You and I have had a lot of conversations about risks, mistakes, even especially while developing your your company brand. And I don't think we've ever talked about this before. Have you always been comfortable with the possibility of making mistakes? We don't like mistakes, or at least we don't like to think we're fallible. We don't like to think we make mistakes, but we probably make 100 mistakes a day, the majority of which are minor and we don't even notice that we're making. I might try to leave the front door and have to go back for my wallet or the access card for my building or my car key or something entirely innocuous. We don't notice those mistakes. They happen all the time. In our professional world, we like to think that we are, we're good at what we do and mistakes erode our perception of our own ability or our own standing within an organization. So mistakes are quite interesting. We make them and we should embrace the fact that they will occur, but it's what you do about those errors. That's the important bit. How do we mitigate that? And there's a whole process that goes into that. Um, It's something called threat and error management. 
and how you identify where your risks are and where you might make mistakes is quite important. You know, none of us like to make mistakes, but it's important to realize that we do make mistakes and that there's actually an opportunity to improve because of them. So when you're thinking about, like you just mentioned, the like threat and risk management or identification, is that something you would recommend like a business owner do? Like, for example, think, what if we don't have, if it's a restaurant owner, what if we don't have any customers in the next month? What do we do? Or what if there's like an outbreak of like, I don't know, salmonella? What do we do? Is that sort of the kind of identification you mean? So you should, as a business owner, identify the things that will threaten your business, where you are taking risks, where you are likely to be exposed. And thinking about these elements is the first step. If you haven't thought about it, then you'll never know. But also, you've got people within your organization who are in a restaurant. They're they're working in the kitchen. They're working in the restaurant floor. They see the problems day in, day out that you as the business owner may not see. So as well as thinking about the problems that you might face as a business owner, you also need to encourage your employees to raise their concerns in a constructive manner, but having a culture within your organization where people will speak up about not only where mistakes are currently happening, but where they see the potential for mistakes to happen is quite important. And if you sit down and can identify where these pinch points are, or where these risks are, you can then do something about them. In my previous company, we used a couple of models, and these are fairly widely accepted models, and a lot of people use them. One is a, is a very simple matrix. And essentially, you plot on one side the severity, so from low to high. And then on the other scale, you plot the impact of that mistake. So it might be that you, you serve the wrong dish to the wrong customer. It might be low likelihood, but the impact of your business is fairly low. It's fairly easy to resolve that. If you undercook the chicken, um, then the risk to the customer goes up. The likelihood of you doing it is a lot lower if you've got professional chefs employed and you have proper standards and controls, but the risk goes up to the individual. And then what you would then do is you would then take these risks or these threats and you would then put them into another model. And There's a model called Bowtie. Uh, And what you do is you put the event in the middle and then on either side you have leading up to the event and on the other side you have should the event occur. And what you're trying to do is put barriers in place on either side. So you you would try and put barriers in place through procedures, training, techniques, policy, equipment, whatever it might be. You put things in place to prevent the incident happening in the first place. So how are we going to prevent the chicken from being uh, undercooked? Well, I'm going to train, make sure my staff are properly trained. I'm going to give them means to test the temperature of the chicken. I'm going to give them guidelines for how they should prepare the food. And then how do we go forward and deal with it should the event occur? And that's also quite important. That's so interesting. I was thinking about a client of ours who had a small, well, not super small, but like a smallish brick and mortar business of about 10 employees. And she worked all the time and was really hesitant to hire more people because she said that people make mistakes and it's just easier if I do it. And, you know, it sounds like illogical from the outside, but I do it too, where it's really, really hard for me to delegate and trust that clients are going to be taken care of and given a true VIP service that like, you know, like I, it makes me really nervous, the thought of like someone else handling it. So for control freaks, like, me and my, <laughs> the client I just mentioned, 
what do you recommend? Because it's not really like, I guess it's like low threat risk that we're scared of. It depends because your reputation. So if you're dealing with VIPs, your reputation is everything, your brand and your reputation. So if you damage your reputation, it might seem like a low risk. No one's going to get injured, but your company might suffer. So actually the risk to you or your business is fairly high. It's difficult to let go of something and it's difficult to relinquish control. But by hiring more people, you're not actually relinquishing control. Yes, you introduce more people to your organization that require training and monitoring, but it enables you as the leader, the manager, um, the owner to take a step back and have a broader overview of what's going on in your organization. And by not being so heavily involved in the day to day, you are more likely to see more clearly where these risks might be within your organization. And certainly you can act on the information you're getting back from your employees. So, okay, so you, with your employees, if you have enough work for four employees every day of the week and you employ five, they might be underutilized, they might be understimulated. So understimulation can be a problem if people get bored. But also if you overwork your employees, they're more likely to make mistakes. And they're, they're more likely to make mistakes for a number of reasons. One, they're overworked, so they might be stressed. But also they might start cutting corners where they deem it appropriate. And so what you don't want is for people within your organization to cut corners because they think it's the most appropriate way of doing it, unless you're aware. It might be entirely appropriate in a certain set of circumstances to deviate from your normal routine. And often that is the case. There are times in aviation where we deviate from the rule set. We deviate because the the rule set can't account for every single possibility. It covers the majority of them, but there are times when it just isn't appropriate. But we don't take those decisions lightly. And we don't make those decisions on our own often. It's a crew decision to deviate from something. Well, in an organization, you don't want an individual on their own making a decision just to do something different because it saves time. Equally, it might be that the way they're doing it is more efficient for your organization. It might actually be better for you, but you might never know that if you are so busy dealing with the day-to-day all the time. And so feeding into that, you need to have a culture within your organization where people come to you and say, A, I'm being overworked. I need to offload some work. Um, here's a potential threat. We're working too hard. We're missing things. We've already this week, we've dropped the ball here and here. We nearly forgot to pick the clients up or we nearly missed this. Or I found a way where we can reduce our workload by changing a procedure here. If you know about it, you can then take this new procedure and put it through your risk models and have a look at whether it complies with all the barriers that you've put in place to prevent certain errors from occurring later on. So actually taking a step back and employing another individual, whilst it might cost you money out of your pocket, A, it frees up capacity for you. You're delegating more effectively. So you're also empowering your employees more. They feel more valued. And you're more likely to see where the errors and issues are in your organization. And that's important for you. As an owner and as a leader, you need to be able to take a step back. Very true. I've been reading a lot of like Brene Brown books, actually listening to the audio books because she's amazing. And when she talks about leadership, she really talks about empowering. So similar to you, like creating a culture where mistakes aren't necessarily penalized unless someone was like aware of severe consequences and did it anyways. But instead, creating a culture where mistakes are talked about and human errors are talked about so that it can be prevented. But she also talks about empowering your team to be able to reach whatever, like basically complete projects in any way they think is best to achieve the final outcome. Now, I bring this up because I know you and I have talked a lot about checklists. And I know that 
that in your line of work, uh, you had mentioned, and it's burned into my brain, that there are checklists for everything. Everything down to the T. I remember you said there was a checklist for you to go to the airport with like what you should be wearing and stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> so I guess, what are your thoughts on that? Where are the lines with like freedom to complete things how you see fit versus following protocol? And should those protocols be in place? I think it depends on what it is you're trying to achieve as well. So see, I work in aviation and there's a very good reason for having checklists. We have checklists for emergencies, checklists for how we get the aircraft ready because you have to do things in a certain way. And if you have problems with the airplane, you have to deal with them in a certain sequence of events. If I give you a project to run, I can empower you to make decisions, but I still need to set boundaries. A bit like when you run a race, there are markers and there are boundaries, so you don't go out of bounds. You, know, you follow a set path, but you have latitude to run 10 meters either side of the, the middle of the road. So it doesn't really matter, but you, you set appropriate boundaries based on the person's experience, knowledge, skill set, but give them some latitude to make decisions within that. And you'll find that they are able to potentially come up with ideas that you hadn't thought of. But empowering people is good for the individual as well, because they feel valued and trusted, and you'll get more from those people. If you just tell someone, I want you to write me a paper on this book, I've read it, it's about this, and I want you to write a paper on that. You're not empowering someone to just be entirely free and come up with whatever they want, because there'll be budgetary constraints, time constraints, procurement constraints. You might need certain sorts of equipment. You might only be able to procure them from certain countries, for example. So you still need to set boundaries. I mean, for us, checklists are... They're different to the boundaries, but sometimes those checklists aren't always appropriate. I have my own checklist. It's not really a checklist, but I have a procedure that I follow every time I go to work because I'm required to do certain things. I'm required to have certain documentation with me. I'm required to wear certain uniforms, to have certain items on me. And my process before I go to work is the same every time and touch wood. It makes sure that I don't forget these things because I, I repeat them. But checklists are also fallible as well. They're not, hmm. they're not the panacea. They are just another tool that you can use for, for, for reducing the risk of error. So you bring up sort of a, like a habit building thing that you do on your own. No one else is making you really do it. And so I guess that's like a really good segue to like small companies or sole proprietors. What's your advice for small companies or freelancers with navigating risk if they are the only or one of the few employees? So... It doesn't really matter how big your organization is because ultimately you need to understand where your risks are. So if you are an online shop, you have certain risks. What if your internet goes down? How are you going to function? So you need to have something in place that deals with that. And it might be that you have a mobile internet dongle that you can use so you can access the internet if your broadband service goes down. You might have a small shop that you run on your own. Well, what if there's an issue with the roof leaks, the boiler bursts, you can't heat the premises. Is it a problem? It might be that losing one day's business actually isn't, isn't a problem. And that's a risk that you hold, but you have someone in place to come and fix it so that you, you limit the amount of time that that is an impact for. It might be that losing the internet, for example, if you're an online business, is entirely unacceptable. Well, you need to identify that so you have some kind of business continuity. The amount of risk or the level of risk that you hold will change depending on the type of industry and the size of your organization. But it's still the same process. Whether you are one person or 100 people or a million people, it doesn't really matter. You need to think about where these risks are, what the impact to you is, what can you stand to bear? 
what can you afford to, to bear? And then once I've identified them, what can I do about it? So we use a little mantra and it's avoid, trap, mitigate. So can I avoid the risk entirely? So I am a mobile hairdresser or I'm a, I'm a delivery guy. It doesn't really matter. So I wake up in the morning and the roads are covered in snow. Well, I could avoid the risk by just not getting in my van and driving or I'm not getting in my car and driving, but that might not be appropriate. So can I mitigate the risks in some way? Well, I might be able to do that. I might be able to take certain steps to, uh, sorry, to trap. Can I trap some of these threats? Well, the road's going to be slippery, aren't they? So what can I do? Well, I can trap some of those threats because I can use snow chains, for example, or I could go later. I could wait for the roads to be cleared. Um, or if, I, if that's not possible at all, how else can I mitigate it? Well, I can drive more slowly. I can drive more carefully. I can allow more time for my journey. I can use these additional things. I can make sure that everyone in my car is wearing a seatbelt. It doesn't take away the risk of the car skidding on the ice, but I can do what I can to protect my occupants should something occur. And that's the important thing. So I want to avoid as many risks as I can, but it's not feasible to avoid risk because every time I wake up in the morning and I leave my building, I'm taking a risk. Every time I cross the road, I'm taking a risk. There's a few other things that I think might, might be of interest to you. Business continuity is something that a lot of big businesses have. So they have plans in place for when issues occur. But having all, these, having all these things done, having risk assessments done is great. You can do them, but you've then got to act on that information as well. So just having thought about the process is great, but you need to do something about it once you've thought about it. And also, you need to keep revisiting. So risks will change all the time. Three months ago, the world was an entirely different place. In six months' time, the world is going to be in a different place. So in a year ago, it was entirely different again. All of our risks and the way we go about life and business changes all the time. So just because I came up with a construct that works today doesn't mean it's going to work in two or three months' time. And I have to be prepared to adapt the way that I work, the way that my business works, and where I'm prepared to take risks and not, depending on what's going on in the world. Do you recommend that a company tests or looks at those risks like every quarter? I'm a bit reluctant to put a time scale on it. Oh. Uh, <laughs> it I guess it depends on, it depends on the business. You're taking, but yeah, you need to exercise your contingency plans. That's the important thing. So uh, in so airfields, they will run crash exercises. So they'll have tabletop exercises where they run through, they'll have maybe 10 or 12 key players in the room from various departments and they will run through scenarios but just around a table and see where the procedures work or not. And then they'll also do bigger exercises. Now, this might not be appropriate. If you're an accounting company, it's not going to be appropriate to run a live exercise. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what you would do, but for an airfield, you'll run. So funny. You'll exercise, you know, the, the fire engines will go out. The ambulance drivers will go out. Ground staff will go out. The local emergency services will get involved. And you see it with um, civil services as well. The police, National Guard, fire service, they do big exercises as well, where they test these procedures and policies. The learning that takes place from those gets fed back into their continuity plans and their contingency planning, and also where they're taking risks, where they're not prepared to take risks. So it's very important that you look at, you think about where you're taking risks, you come up with some way of dealing with that, and then you exercise the plans that you come up with so that you can prove whether it's working or not. I think that's, that's quite important. Cool. There's one other thing, and it's kind of relevant to what's going on in the world at the moment, everyone wants to talk about coronavirus, COVID-19, call it what you will. It's a global pandemic. It is, it was, but it's a global pandemic on an unprecedented scale. So people will say, well, why did you not foresee this? Now, it's very difficult to foresee something that's quite on this scale because we've seen things before, SARS, Ebola, mm -hmm. 
Like we've had other things, bird flu, swine flu, uh, mad cow disease. They didn't impact the world in the way that this has impacted the world. So nobody could really foresee it. A lot of learning is going to take place from this in the way the world shuts down or not, how we deal with these sort of crises. But that's kind of by the by. What, something that we're seeing now, as well as organizations struggling, people are struggling. I have many of my friends are in lockdown and they're struggling as well. So personal well-being is, is very important. And even outside of situations like this, the well-being of your employees is very important. And there are, there are tools available to people to help deal with stress and anxiety. So one of the things that happens when you end up in a situation that you're unfamiliar with, which, are, well, which is something we were going to talk about originally when we started talking about this, is just dealing with un, unfamiliar situations. Mm-hmm. Well, unusual situations put us into stress and you get your fight or flight response. And something that, that we do in aviation is resilience training. So we train our people to be resilient for unknown situations. And what we always try and do is we try and bring things back to a known in some way. And we break things down into simple steps. So for flying an airplane, the first thing I want to do is fly the airplane. Everything else is irrelevant. Because if I'm not in control of the airplane, it doesn't matter if I'm dealing with the fire on the wing or the passenger that's unruly. I need to make sure that that bit's safe. You can boil that down to many other things. What is the number one important thing that's going to keep everybody safe? Deal with that first. And once I've dealt with that, I've already achieved something and I can move on through a process to fix the problem. But then well-being of an individual, stress, anxiety, low mood, situations where people are isolated or they're overworked, people need to find ways of maintaining positive mental health. So there are a number of people at the moment that are offering free sessions online and you see it every now and again. There are breathing exercises that you can read up on on the internet. Something that I found very useful going through the isolation that came with coronavirus is having a routine. So between flights, for me, I wasn't allowed to leave my apartment. But I gave myself tasks to do every day that meant I had a reason to get out of bed. I had a reason to work my brain. So I started taking lessons. So I had something to study, had something to focus on. Exercise is always very important. It gives you, a, it gives you something to do. It gives you something to focus on. But being mentally and physically fit is really good. It helps you get through a lot of these things. So it's all very well to look after your organization, but you need to, the people inside need to be able to look after themselves as well. Now, this is a great conversation you're having. You're back. With Marcus. I'm back. You knew that I couldn't stay away that long. You got to plug your... I acted like your... I wasn't going to appear again. <laughs> yeah. Got to plug what I'm you're here selling. For the, here for the plug. Um... <laughs> As we do, we take a little break in the conversation to tell you about what we have cooking in our kitchen here at PPC Phil Palin Collective. The last few months have been pretty hectic, but exciting in terms of creating and launching courses. This is a new thing for us in 2020. We launched three courses. Do you want to tell everyone what the courses are? Yeah. Let me see if I can name them off the top of my head because you did all the work for these. I'm literally quizzing you. That's what this is. Oh my is. God. I'm like, my palms are sweaty. <laughs> This was not in the script. Okay. We've got content mastery, which teaches you how to prepare content quickly using a system that you use yourself. Yeah, I'll take it. Next, we have Instagram mastery. Is that out of order? It's out of order. That's out of order, but you can keep going. 
Instagram Mastery is Phil Palin's latest course that teaches people how to become true masters of their Instagram feed, stories, live, and IGTV. Okay, I like that description. That was a good description. That was even better than your description for Content Mastery. We have one more course. Can you remember the name of it? I can. Email Mastery. Ooh, that's the one. Learn how to build your email list through freebies and content that people actually want and then keep that list engaged by delivering timely messages through email. What a selection, of course, is what a world of possibilities. And you, as a loyal listener to Brand Therapy, we are giving you a code that not only works on one, two, but three of these courses. So you can get 50% off the list price. Courses are listed at $299, but this promo code will make it $149. And all you need to do is use the code THERAPY50 at checkout to get our courses for 15% off. 50, 50. Oh my gosh. I used to have braces. So when I say 15 and 50 quickly, it sounds the same. Not 15, 50 enunciating. I get it. I wonder if like speech therapists get an influx of people after they get their braces off because I got a lisp after my braces. It's still alive and well as ever <laughs> as our listeners know. It's crazy. You should sue your orthodontist because of that. No, Dr. Moonen's amazing. <laughs> He's great. I don't want to sue Dr. Moonen. Are you going to sue. sue your orthodontist? No. It's just something I have to deal with. It's the price you pay for... $15,000 or $50,000. Yeah, the price you pay for beautiful teeth. Um, (laughs) This is digressing quickly. Should we get back to your conversation with Marcus? Let's do it. Okay, let's do that. I listened to an audiobook called Atomic Habits. I think I told you about it, actually. I've downloaded it. Yeah. Yeah. And so basically, James Clear, the author, is of the mindset that you can automate your brain and you can pretty much automate all parts of your life generally so that you're using less mental effort while still like getting closer and closer to your goals or the type of life that you want to live. And so he basically teaches you kind of how to do... I can't remember what it's called. It's like habit building. So first, like if you want to start getting in the habit of exercising at the gym every morning, well, that actually starts with your nighttime routine to make sure that you're in bed on time so that you can wake up feeling refreshed early. I'm sure you know all this, but it's just interesting because I was thinking just personally how my schedule is all over the place. Every day is fairly different. I wake up at different times. Last night I was working on my computer until nine, but I try to do that until six sometimes. And you're so right because for us to be like mentally strong and to have the proper instincts in place to handle things that are unexpected, we need to make sure that we're in a good position. I personally have a good, healthy foundation to tackle whatever's thrown my way. Yeah. And you mentioned sleep. Sleep is hugely important. It's probably one of the most important things that you can have. If you don't sleep properly and you're tired, you don't function properly. And it it knocks into everything else you do. And having a good night's sleep is really important. When I went through my basic military training, the guy that I shared a room with, he had, he didn't have very many rules, but the one that sticked in my mind was the lights go off at midnight and they don't come on till six in the morning. If you haven't finished what you need to do, irrelevant. The lights go off and you sleep for at least six hours. 
So because the extra one or two percent that you might gain in tidying up your uniform or ironing this or getting ready for that isn't worth the two hours that you're going to spend doing it. The two hours of sleep that you will lose will knock more than two percent off your performance the next day. And the day after that, it will be even more and even more. And in the end, you'll end up in a really, really bad position. Focus on the stuff that's important. 99% and a good night's sleep is better than 99.5% and a bad night's sleep. I feel like we covered a lot of really good things in this episode too. Well, there are many resources on the internet where you can read up on this on your own. And there are many, many companies that offer advice in specific areas, depending on your industry. And you can plug into these resources to get help and advice, which is also also quite important. And a lot of people now are offering free advice. And I think that's going to continue for some time. I don't know how long this nonsense is going to go on for with the well-being. Yeah. But certainly everyone's adapting. So a lot of people are doing business online. They're doing meetings online now. And it's a very quick and easy way to get some information quickly to the organization. And people shouldn't be afraid to reach out for help either. We can't, yeah. we can't be experts at everything. We bring in experts. You know, I, I bring in a plumber or an electrician if I need work doing on my house. You know, I wouldn't build my house myself. <laughs> if I need help in my organization dealing with risk or dealing with some other aspect, bring in someone who can help you. It might be that you just need an hour of their time to give you some tips and some guidelines. You don't need someone necessarily to come in and pull your organization apart and do all the work for you because that would also be counterproductive. You need to be involved in your own organization. But calling on experts in different fields to assist you is not something to shy away from if you can afford to do it as well. That's the other, that's the other side of it. But there's plenty of free resources available, but also there are plenty of people that are willing to help. So don't be afraid to call on help on it when you need it. I think that everyone should just call you, Marcus, from Plain Spoken. I love them. I think everyone should. <laughs> I love them. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm not awesome. <laughs> so where can people find you online? So my website, which was amazingly branded by Lauren and Phil, which is plainspoken.co.uk. Perfect. There's a sign-up box on there so you can sign up to the emails that we send out and there's a contact form. And if you've got any questions or queries, feel free to get in touch and ask me your questions and queries. And I'll do my best to help. Awesome. Thank you so much, Marcus. This has been great. All right, thanks. It's been fun. 